0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, Kevin Williamson, and the podcast debut of David Drucker, who has joined the Dispatch. And uh, we're just so thrilled to have him on our political team. David, welcome. We have plenty to talk about today. We will start with Memphis, but we will also talk about happenings on the Hill, some 2024 news. Who knows? Who knows where we'll get to? I really just want to call you new David for the rest of the podcast, but (laughs) we're actually going to start with Jonah. (laughs) Uh, Jonah, you wrote about the protests that are happening, Memphis, race related to police. I I thought it was a great column, even though I didn't agree with all of it. And I'm wondering if you could sum up where you think um, the protesters are wrong, I guess?
1: Sure. I mean, it depends which protesters we're talking about, right? You know, I have no problem, I have no objection with people who are horrified by what happened um, to Tyree Nichols. Because what happened to Tyree Nichols is, is, is horrifying. Um, even though I think, you know, I suspect that this is all going to become more complicated down the road when when, when these things go to trial. Um, But that's a conversation we can get to for another time. Um, My objection with uh, the sort of the way this stuff is framed is um, there are an enormous number of people who should know better, who just simply say policing is racist. Like, not no qualifiers, no adjectives, no adverbs, just sort of policing, qua policing, the institution of policing is racist. And... um, and there are even people, these are prominent people, people like Todd Easy Coates, uh, James Clyburn, who's the number three guy in the House Democrats, said this a while back. There's this whole theory, this sort of almost urban, it's not quite an urban myth, but there's this theory that slaving, is, that, that, that policing in America is descended directly and immutably from the practice of slave patrolling, from fugitive slave patrolling. Uh, you had a writer for, a uh, contributing writer for The Atlantic say the other day that um, that policing is a product of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And so my problem with this stuff is that it's very stupid. Um, and it's just it's just factually wrong. Uh, I keep trying to figure out what the earliest police forces are, and the earliest police forces are lost to history because policing is basically what states do. Um, I know we have an anarcho, sometime anarcho-capitalist in and, and Kevin... Williams in here, so maybe you can push back on this for me. But the ancient Egyptians had police, the Babylonians had police, the oldest still operating police force in Europe uh, is from 1275 or something like that. Was, were the oldest police force in the United States is the Philadelphia Police Department, which was started up in 1751. Were they all inspired by the Fugitive Slave Act, which happened, you know, sometimes centuries or millennia later? And um similarly, we talk about. America, as if you, it is.
2: You know, Jonah, if you're trying to defend police from the accusation of racism, maybe uh, Frank Rizzo's old organization isn't isn't the first one to go to. I, but, I am uh, not.
1: I am not <laughs> trying to defend it from that. I am perfectly fine with believing that there are institutions that are that have, that that are racist, the police police departments that are racist or have a racism problem. But um, point taken. Um, <laughs> my my point is simply that there are other things going on. Right? Human beings, particularly men, have been known when, in, in for, when they form up in numbers to do bad things when their blood is up. Um, sometimes those men are in criminal gangs, and sometimes those men are in police uniforms. And what we get after each one of these kinds of incidents is everyone starts with the conclusion and then just takes sticky notes of random things and attaches it to make the argument. American policing was not created because of racism and catching fugitive slaves. Policing in and of itself is not racist. If it were racist, you'd have to explain why every country literally in the world has police departments. Um, And the reason why this is bad is that if you think you have the answer and the explanation for a very serious social problem and you're wrong, you're not actually going to do much to fix the problem.
0: So Kevin, before I come to you, I want to run through some of the stats that Jonah included because I Mm -hmm. thought they were interesting. Uh, In the last 12 months, about 1,100 people were shot and killed by police. Going by data since 2015, the killed are overwhelmingly male, 96%, armed, 83%, and under the age of 44, 73%. They are not overwhelmingly black, but they are disproportionately black. 27% of those killed were black, while the US population is 14% black. 51% of those shot were white, while the US population is 57% non Hispanic white. One in five victims had confirmed mental health issues. And overall, uh, the US ranks 33 in the world um, for police confirmed killings, though, as Jonah points out, this assumes countries like China, Russia, India, Mexico, North Korea collect and report accurate statistics, which let's just assume not so much. Um, you know, part of the problem with taking a single incident and having nationwide protests is that it doesn't tell you whether there's a systemic problem. At the same time, it does feel like there's a systemic problem, doesn't it, Kevin?
2: Yeah, I think um, complaints about policing are, um, in many cases, well-founded. Um, the racial aspect of these complaints is often exaggerated, but that doesn't mean that there's not um, some underlying issue there. Um, you know, there've been a lot of, to speak to Jonah's earlier point, there've been a lot of different kinds of police organizations over the years. You know, the first of all, modern police department was the the Metropolitan Police in, in in London, founded by Peel, back in the nineteenth century. So you know, kind of police departments, as we know them, city police departments, are relatively uh, modern inventions. But if you look at the way police have operated in the past, or police like organizations have operated in the past, we know, for a time, the, the mafia essentially were the police in parts of of Sicily, or at least what you know uh, what ended up becoming the organization we know as the we know as the mafia. And they were kind of and uh, Philadelphia to bring back to. Well, this is way <laughs> back. I'm talking kind of late Middle Ages. They were kind of a, sort of a Mutawin uh, kind of organization. They were, you know, public defenders of, uh, of public morality and that sort of thing. Um, but what we know really know is as modern police departments are relatively new inventions. And they have um, a lot of the character that you see of other kinds of similar public bureaucracies. Um, police departments in the United States, like most um, public sector agencies in the United States, aren't especially good. Uh, public sector stuff isn't just one of the things we're really good at in the United States compared to a lot of other countries. We have generally poor uh, public sector services from Department of Motor Vehicles to the police to the IRS to, uh, to everybody else. When you have failing institutions like that, they tend to impose higher and more severe costs on people who are poor, uh, people who are uh, socially marginalized in other kinds of ways. So one expects to see um, the, the bad consequences of bad policing felt more intensely in in certain communities including uh including uh particularly poor high crime uh, urban african american communities so the sense that there is um a kind of widespread failure there and that the 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 pain of the uh, this failure is is borne disproportionately by not by uh by people who are by people who are African American, which is not the same thing as saying African Americans at large, right? Because when you talk about uh, black Americans and crime, uh, you're still talking about a tiny, tiny share of the population. Um, you know we, we go through all this kind of funny stuff with with race and, and, and criminal statistics, and you can look and say, yeah, the uh, you know homicide arrest rate for for black Americans is five times whatever it is for white Americans, but that's you know ends up being five out of 100,000 instead of one out of 100,000. You know, you're talking about a disproportionate share, but a very small number. So there are particular communities and particular cities, especially that have, you know, great intense, comprehensive public sector failures like St. Louis is one, Baltimore is one. Uh, Memphis is not, you know, famously a well-governed city. It's not famously a city with uh, effective public institutions, that sort of things. No surprise that the police department is um, similarly troubled. Uh, like a lot of police departments, they've had trouble recruiting people over the last couple of years, especially since the George Floyd stuff. Um, I hate to sound um, flippant about that, but American police departments just typically don't attract the very best people. Um, the cops who were involved in the uh, in the beating of Tyree Nichols, all with exception of one, had um, you know some pretty serious uh, write ups and disciplinary measures on their on their histories and whatnot, including. You know, one who turned in a patrol car with a revolver in the backseat because he hadn't bothered to, you know, search the guy who came in. Another one was caught up in a situation when he was a prison guard, uh, which someone was beaten very, very severely in his cell. And um, he says he didn't do anything wrong, but the department issued an apology to the person who was uh, beaten, although his lawsuit was was thrown out. So there's some, you know, some some red flags in the situation before you even get to where it is and that's almost always the case right i mean these situations don't come out of nowhere they're not unpredictable
3: and i'll say one final thing about communities that are particularly impacted and this gets this sort of gets to the to the is it a bad apples issue or is it systemic let let's presume for the sake of argument that it's not systemic let's just presume for the sake of argument that it's a bad apples issue but that there is national scrutiny on the bad apples and and it, it creates its own problem. Right after the George Floyd incident, the murder of George Floyd, I, for various reasons, I was interviewing Senator Marco Rubio and it was at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. And I was asking him a question about Black Lives Matter and whether he agreed with it or not. And, and he said he didn't know, You know, he said the organization Black Lives Matter is one thing, the, the slogan may be another thing. But what he did say to me is, even if you assume that there is nothing wrong with our policing, and that the problem is crime. And of course, as a Republican, he is generally a law and order kind of Republican, generally speaking. He said, however, if a significant portion of Americans believe that the policing, policing tactics and police forces are racist or treat them unfairly, if that's what they believe, because that is their experience, even if it's not technically true, it's a problem that society needs to address. And I thought that was a very interesting statement. Can I respond to one little thing real quick? I think that the
2: problem is a lot worse than bureaucracies failing to do a job that is hard. And uh, I think that we, we go wrong if we if we if we look at it that way. You know every big city police department in this country either currently is or it has been at some point in living memory a host organism for some organized crime outfit. Um, you know, in Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, you have the sheriff's gangs. In LAPD, you had the Ramparts, which wasn't just corrupt cops. They were robbing banks and stuff. In NYPD, you had uh, detectives who were acting as assassins for the uh, Gambino and Lucchese crime syndicates in Philadelphia. It was racketeering. Uh, there is something about these organizations that um, lend themselves to that kind of exploitation that, and that attract sort of people who are going to engage in it. Uh, I think we have to look at police departments um, from that point of view um, as being a kind of um, obviously necessary organization, uh, but a necessary organization that brings with it certain kinds of predictable problems. Um, These things are not surprises. They shouldn't be, at least at this point. Yeah, I I don't,
1: I think that's exactly right. I, I don't dispute that at
2: all. At
1: the same time, David touched on something that I think is sort of worth pointing out that a lot of people are afraid to point out because it sounds like blaming the victim. And, and I'm not saying, I don't think there's a lot of victim blaming that you can do with Tyree Nichols. If you talk to cops about what happened, you know, uh, they're appalled at the bad procedure. Right? I mean, like, it should not take five big guys to restrain a 145-pound guy. Even if you have, even if all sorts of chokeholds or whatever are outlawed, it should not be hard. And the problem is they gave them all these different orders and then they, they, they pepper spray him in the face. And so he puts his hands up to his face and they said, we told you to put your hands back on your back. Well, it's like a reflexive thing. It's very hard not to put your hands to your face when someone's punching you in the face or pepper spraying you. And so I'm not trying to do a victim blaming thing with him, but in a society or in a segment of society that has high levels of crime, cops put up with an enormous amount of stuff all the time that makes for very boring body cam footage. Every cop that you see walk up and ask for a driver's license with his hand on his gun saying, let me see your hands and all that kind of stuff. The adrenaline is pumping through them in all of those instances where nothing happens. And that's a very high stress kind of environment. And if you don't have the right training, it's very easy to see why even some well-trained cops pop off irresponsibly and unforgivably, um, when they do meet resistance, um, when they do find someone who is uh, not complying. And, um, and I think that that's, that's the argument for more and better training. But it's also an argument for recognizing that not every person that cops encounter that gets unlawfully and and, 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 un, and inexcusably brutalized doesn't contribute to that environment, right? doesn't contribute to the stress of the situation in some way. And like the only piece of advice that I think you can really get out of this other than prosecute cops and train them better and all that kind of thing is don't run from cops. I once ran from a cop when I was about 17 years old, 16 years old. And uh, the cop grabbed me, threw me against the wall and gave me a lecture. He was saying, never run from cops. We hate running. And if we have to run, you're lucky. I'm not going to beat you here. And it was just a straightforward, like, let me give you the facts of life. We can forgive a lot if you don't make our lives more difficult. And I'm not saying I like that attitude. I'm not saying that's a good attitude, but I think it's a fact of life. And parents who tell their teenage kids, white or black, don't give trouble to the cops,
2: blah, 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 for your own good. Even if it's unfair, it's good advice. What kind of training do they really need, though? I mean, it's like a 30-second seminar that says, don't beat to death unarmed people.
0: Yeah, no, I, <laughs> That's, I agree. I think, the problem with the, like, more training aspect here. It's like, more. What, how does more training fix some of this? But let me push back like on, on that, too. Yeah.
2: There's a little post-it note on the board every morning. Remember, <laughs> don't beat anyone to death today <laughs> if you don't have to. I want to push back on that, too, though. Look, first of all, one kind of training is, like,
1: is, is what, conflict? de-escalation stuff, mm. which I think is good. But second of all, training has worked. The the, the death rate of, of, of the homicide rate for um, African-Americans killed by cops has plummeted in the last 50 years because society says this is intolerable. And instead of saying there's still more work to be done, but we're making progress, we get arguments from a lot of people saying that this is an intractable, unreformable, unfixable, permanent problem, and that it's so permanent and so bad that we can't emphasize re- reform anymore, we have to get rid of policing entirely, which is crazy talk.
0: I I just want to end on the political element of this, and I mean the right versus left, Democrats versus Republicans, not all Democrats, not all Republicans, but um, I think if I asked most people on the right, whether there is a systemic problem in higher education, when it comes to uh, wokeism, free speech, however I'd want to define it, I think they would say yes. And if I asked for evidence of that systemic problem, you know, they would be pointing out individual issues. But if I did that for the police, a lot of those same people on the right would say no. And I'd say, well, but there's all these different examples. Tyree Nichols, George Floyd. Why do you think that's not evidence of a systemic problem? And they would say, those are individual incidents. Those are bad apples. And I, and I think you could do the same thing on the left, by the way, just, I mean, reverse them, right? Um, and I find that interesting and sad as a political reality, but I wanted to point out something that Will Hurd. That's why we have this podcast,
1: uh, is to point out the interesting and sad about politics. <laughs> it's
0: so true. Uh,
2: Although Hurd, I think that particular aspect is boring and sad because
0: it's just so <laughs> predictable. Will Hurd, friend of the pod, um, longtime personal friend of mine, put this on Instagram. One thing I'd love this Black History Month is not to have to decide whether to watch the newest video of a Black person being murdered in police custody. I shouldn't have to look at the swift accountability leveled against the Memphis police over Tyree Nichols' murder as a silver lining to make it hurt one degree less. I'm just tired of this being one of the things America is known for. I appreciated his statement because it gets to the exhaustion aspect of this. And it's hard, you know, we can talk about more training is good, more training isn't fast enough, or this is systemic, this isn't systemic. Police jobs are hard. But this is exhausting. And I just appreciated Will Hurd posting that and wanted to share it with our listeners, because I think he's an important voice on the right for this stuff. Um, and I think it's important for people on the right who feel exhausted, who don't have all the answers right now, just to say something rather than let the loudest voices on the right who tell us that there is no problem in the police side, but there's a huge problem in the higher education side. Um, maybe, maybe take a step back.
3: Plus.
0: All right, David, new David.
1: David <laughs> 2.0. <0. laughs>
0: <laughs> I want to totally switch gears here, except for the fact that it's going to be a political tit for tat and talk about House committee assignments. What could be sexier on this Thursday morning? The House is set to vote on whether to remove Democratic member Elon Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, That has to go to a vote. My understanding is that removing uh, Congressmen Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff from House Intelligence uh, didn't need a vote because that's a select committee. Um, That's already been, they've already been officially denied seats on those. This is, of course, exactly what McCarthy vowed he would do. He said that if Democrats removed Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from committees, that, you know, what's good for the goose is going to be good for the gander. And here we are, and it's the gander's turn. Um, Can you tell us where things stand? That vote is going to happen today for Omar, probably while we are taping this. Um, And is this now going to be our new reality that we just remove sort of the most egregious members from the other side for funsies? And I'll point out, by the way, the funny thing to me is that Marjorie Taylor Greene goes on to raise $3 million in the quarter after she's removed from her House committee. And Adam Schiff, who was just removed from House Intelligence, uh, the Permanent Select Committee, uh, just was endorsed by Nancy Pelosi for Senate in California. So it seems like it's good business.
3: It's the era of shameless politics. I mean, you know, there's no better way to rise in your party than to have the right enemies. And when Marjorie Taylor Greene was kicked off of committees by uh, a vote of House Democrats led by Speaker Nancy, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi, it just it made her more of a rock star than she already was. Um, Voters these days, particularly small dollar donors um, who are really involved in at least observing and participating in politics, even if they're not really party people, uh, they just get really jazzed when – um, somebody defies the so-called establishment and is hated by all the people they hate. And so that was really good for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I suspect the same will, it will be the same for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar if she's booted from foreign relations. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a second here. She will raise boatloads of money. She's in a safe democratic district, but now you'll really never beat her because she'll be a martyr. Um, and, and we're seeing the same with Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. Um, And you're you're right about this. When you have a House select committee, these are leadership appointed, meaning they can be leadership locked. So there wasn't any vote there. But in a standing committee, it requires a vote of the House uh, to remove somebody. Republicans have a four vote margin. So it's unclear if they're going to have the votes to get this done, because there are some Republicans that seem to be principled on the notion that People should not be removed from committees for saying ridiculous things, uh, whether they're anti-Semitic, whether they're racist or anything else. And so I think we need to be clear about what this is about. It isn't necessarily about, I don't believe that you should be removed from a committee because I don't agree with you. I think there is a line at which anybody would probably be removed from a committee. I mean, I think if, you know, some member of Congress decided to put on jackboots and wave the swastika, I imagine they'd be voted off committees by just about everybody. Paul Gosar abstaining. <laughs> uh, yeah, so apparently, by the way, you can, yeah, I get, you can go to events, I as mean, we look, you can go to events where these people are. But as long as you don't put on the uniform, you're cool. So, yeah. So what we have here is, you know, especially in this era, and, and I and I think really with, with both parties, but we've seen this really with Republicans in a way that I don't recall 20, 30, 40 years ago seeing it with them. If you've done us wrong, then we are going to get our revenge because if we don't, our most committed voters are going to get really upset with us for not taking our revenge. And so after Marjorie Taylor Greene was removed from committee, Kevin McCarthy, then the minority leader, said, if you do this, we will do it to you. And Ilhan Omar has said some very anti-Semitic things. She claims not to have been aware of anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, okay, fine. Um, and so they're gonna try and remove her. But for some Republicans, Ken Buck was one, Nancy Mace is another. Um, Victoria Sparts was another, although I think she's now said she'll vote to remove Ilhan Omar there is a concern that this just is unserious and will lead for an endless never-ending tit-for-tat that is counterproductive so will mccarthy get the votes eh, i suspect in the end he probably got them if this is you're listening to this after the vote but um but it's unclear and but that is exactly what this is it is simply Uh, revenge for Green. Had Green never been removed, nobody would have removed Ilhan Omar or tried to, and that would have been that.
0: But okay, I just have a factual question here. On Ilhan Omar, there are plenty of statements we can point to where she has been condemned by her own colleagues on the Democratic side for anti-Semitic tropes. And you're right, she said she doesn't know a lot about anti-Semitic tropes, which is maybe its own problem. She said she didn't know money um, you know, Jews liking money was an anti-Semitic trope. Things like that.
2: She thought the horse uh, vessel song was an anthem for, for Norsky farmers in northern Minneapolis. The, Martians,
0: the <laughs> but, Martians know that. But, you know, OK, Marjorie Taylor Greene apologized, too. It didn't make any difference. She was removed from her committees. That at least I see an equivalent to. What is the argument on Swalwell and Schiff?
3: The argument on Swalwell and Schiff is that they told a bunch of lies about the, the dreaded Russia hoax. And therefore, cannot be trusted with American secrets, and cannot be trusted to. But also, Swalwell, Swalwell had an affair or something with supposedly a spy. I mean, that. Yeah, by the way, I, I'm, I'm just saying what I'm they're more, saying. By the way, know? I'm. It's it's created this issue now. I think. By the way, I think part of this is a little bit revenge in that McCarthy's picks for the January 6th committee were blocked by Nancy Pelosi. Who then only took, of course, Kinzinger and yeah, Cheney. Yeah. So there's a revenge element there, but I think that that there's an argument to make that not. The
0: January 6th committee people being blocked looks a lot more like Swalwell and um and Schiff to me, in the sense that it's not that you said something that was just so beyond the pale of acceptable discourse. It it is a political thought. Yet you're right. I mean, Swalwell has admitted to saying things that no, sorry, Schiff has admitted to saying things that were untrue. Um Swalwell there's the Chinese spy thing, I guess, but at the end of the day, that feels just purely political, um unless you know Nazis and Jewish space lasers, yeah look even if it's even if there's a case to make,
3: it's all purely political because members of members of the House of Representatives at the very least are a broad cross section of America, believe it or not, so like if you're wondering about your government, like blame yourselves. There are hundreds of them. I mean, you're right, there are 435 of them. And then there's another 100 senators. So there are more than 400 of them, and lots of them say wacky stuff. Lots of them. They have all sorts of strange opinions. Now, they're not all you know, racist, anti-Semitic opinions. But you'd be surprised what some of them say. And if they really want to start policing who said what and who spun what and who lied at some time or another about some policy... There'd be nobody on
0: committee. Jonah, it does seem interesting that Republicans remove Adam Schiff from a committee for lying while George Santos is sitting there.
1: <laughs> yeah, although George Santos has now recused himself, right? Um, that word doesn't to- make any sense.
0: I know it doesn't. <laughs> but
1: I'm just, I'm I, uh, sorry, people, people can't hear me making air quotes around recused. I use my fingers. But um, yeah, I, so I, I basically agree with you guys. Look, everybody this is a um, non-zero-sum game for everybody. Everybody benefits from this except the people watching, right? So uh, everyone raises more money. Adam Schiff is in hog heaven having been kicked off. Um, Elon Omar is very happy about being the center of attention. Kevin McCarthy is very happy to say that he's accomplished something when he goes on TV. Um, And at the same time, I'm actually more okay with this than I normally would be because Congress is supposed to be kind of a zoo and like, it's supposed to be like, um, a political cauldron. And, um, I don't, and because none of it really matters, um, except if you're someone who actually thinks they should be doing their jobs, um, then, um, let them actually think congress is important that committee assignments are important. I mean, maybe that's like a good lesson for these guys to learn since they forgot it. And other than that, it is um I just anybody who says it is a someone said recently that it is a, it is a crisis for national security not to have Adam Schiff on this committee because he knows so much about intelligence or whatever and it's like oh no, is Nancy it like, It's like Nancy somebody said it's America <laughs> in danger not to have Adam Schiff on it. I think I'm he sure said that, actually. So, I'm sure he did. <laughs> I'm sure he's saying that right now. But um, it's Pr- Printing uh, up bumper stickers. It's just also pathetic, but I, 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 I kind of like it
2: for some reason.
0: All right, Kevin, last word to you on this.
2: So my least favorite expression is, this is what democracy looks like. This is what democracy <laughs> looks like, right? <laughs> so people in Minneapolis get to send a Jew-hating weirdo to Congress, and a self-interested cretin from California gets to say, no, you don't get to be on committees. That's fine. The alternative model is the one that that that, that I like to see, uh, which is where institutions care about themselves and, and take some defensive measures on their own. I would love to see Marjorie Taylor Greene denied committee assignments by the Republican. I would love to see the Democrats come out and say, no, this lady is a, is a crank and we're not going to put her in any committees. And uh, we're going to let her sit in the back and uh, be a backbencher and give talks about how Jews love money and their first uh, allegiances to Israel and and all the rest of this stuff yeah, it's it's hard to work up too much of a head of steam about this. There's this, you know, kind of the, the tit for tat stuff in the procedural maximalism is is a is a problem, you know, in writ large for Congress, where now you have these kind of grandstanding uh, confrontations on every procedural choke point. every you know minor parliamentary advantage gets uh, gets blown up to its uh, its its greatest possible interpretation. The thing about this that I think is historically kind of interesting is that, Typically, Democrats are the ones who uh, make innovations on this front, and then they get mad because Republicans are good at it, or uh, we'll will do the same thing that they do. Like there was no complaints about gerrymandering for a hundred years until Republicans <laughs> got good at it. Uh, until some some Republican figured out how to use a computer and uh, they, they they figured out how to do this stuff. There was no you know um, complaints about the um, politicization of the. Uh, Process of confirming Supreme Court justices until uh, Mitch McConnell decided he was going to be, you know, a real SOB about it. And uh, now the Democrats are sort of getting paid back with their own for for what they did earlier. And it's hard to approve of that. Someone eventually has to be the grown up in the room, but it's also hard to get to, you know, to feel too much sympathy about it either.
0: worth your time but it's not (laughs) it has it has made it in but boy it felt like a close call nikki haley is announcing for president on february 15th this is not a is nikki haley worth your time i think she'll have a serious candidacy it's more like nikki haley's announcing for president is that worth your time because they're all going to announce for president and we're going to pay more attention to the people who announce when there's fewer people who have announced type thing um Jonah, I'm going to start with you. Nikki Haley initially said in the summer of 2021 that if Donald Trump got in the race, she wouldn't run. then she said, if Donald Trump got in the race, she would call him first and they'd work it out. She's been on sort of that line for a while. And she did, in fact, it sounds like, call Donald Trump. It seems like they did have a phone call. They did talk it out. And uh, he gave his blessing, I suppose. Nevertheless, on Truth Social, his reaction was, Nikki, follow your heart, not your honor, um, attached to a video of her saying she wouldn't run if he got in the race. I don't even know, Jonah. Well, what do you make of it?
1: Um, so I should do, you know, uh, a full disclosure. My wife once worked for Nikki Haley, um, both at the UN and also on a couple of her books. No longer does. I won't let my wife, speaker on mine about the rest of it. I think we are shaping up for another 2016. I mean, it feels more and more like it. You have all of these candidates not wanting to be the one to go after Donald Trump directly, wanting to be the one to sort of pick up uh, the ball after Trump fades. I mean, we're literally seeing people say these kinds of things and strategists talking this way. Larry Hogan said something like this recently. Uh, McKay Coppins has this piece in The Atlantic where um, he talks to Rob Portman, bless his heart, and Rob Portman says, look, you know, I feel like maybe, I think what's probably going to happen is Donald Trump is going to realize that for the good of the country, he would be, and also for himself, he would rather be an elder statesman in the party than actually president run again. And so he'll, he'll gracefully bow out or something to that effect. And McKay Coppins admits in the article that he burst into laughter. When Portman had said this and then Portman says, okay, I guess maybe that's a little far fetched, huh? And, um, and so I'm having major 2016 flashbacks. I feel like Roy Scheider and jaws two, running around with an eight by 10 fuzzy glossy saying that's a shark and God damn it. I'm not going through that hell again. Um, and, um, and someone, and so again, like it's fine that Nikki's going to run. I think she'll do better than people think she's going to do. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet her to go all, bet on her to go all of the way. Um, but, um, or at least not heavily, but we have this, I mean, I, I feel like I should have, I should have copyrighted the belling the cat problem talking point, because I've been using it for so friggin' long, which is like in game theory, when you, in the cat problem is when it is in the interest of every mouse to put a bell on the cat, but it is not in the interest of any specific mouse to be the one to put the bell on the cat. And right now we have a problem where it is in the interest of everybody to see Trump have a bell put on him, by which is mean defanged, taken out, whatever. And instead, everyone wants to be follow Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio strategy from 2016 of being the one standing when somebody else takes Trump out. And um, I'm not saying Trump is going to be the nominee. I'm not saying Trump is going to be the next president or anything like that. I am saying that there's a remarkable lack of imagination among Republicans right now. And I think you can make the argument that Ron DeSantis is in fact helping Trump because he is sucking up all the money and attention from any other Republican. And serving as a blocking tackle. And if you don't think Don- Ron DeSantis is going to go all the way, he's actually um, um, helping clear the field in some ways for Donald Trump instead. Rant over.
0: Okay, but uh, don't call A, me but. <laughs> um, uh, it's hard to argue with the atmospherics. You're exactly right in general. But you think back to 2008, there were plenty of other Democrats who ran in the 2008 Democratic primary, John Edwards, uh, Dennis Kucinich, Jim Webb, yada, yada. But we don't ever think about them because it became a two-man race immediately from January of 2007, um, when they all announced for some reason very, very early that year. It was always Obama, the Upstart the change, the different voice versus Hillary Clinton, the juggernaut, and could he take her down? And that narrative was it. I mean, it was hard for Obama to seal the deal in the end, if you remember, but it was always miserable for the Clinton campaign. And uh, Donald Trump was absolutely much more like Obama in 2015. No record, could say whatever he wanted, all change, all hope, all different. Um, This time he's looking a lot more like Hillary Clinton. And if DeSantis is more like the Obama figure and maybe more to the point, if the race shapes up more like the 2008 race where it's this narrative about the juggernaut versus the upstart, um, maybe it's not 2015 all over again. Kevin, am I deluding myself? Probably. In that um... case, by the way, it makes Haley, you know, Jim Webb and it's sort of irrelevant.
2: Hmm. Haley is Jim Webb. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, the, the the best part, the best thing that ever happened during Donald Trump's presidency is when they decided to put Jared Kushner in charge of coming up with an immigration plan. And he came up with this idea for merit based reform and just seeing the name Jared Kushner juxtaposed with the words merit based just was <laughs> such a good laugh that um, it was almost worth all the rest of it. So, you know, Trump going on and, and giving Nikki Haley a, a lecture about honor. Has been so far the most entertaining and uh, and amusing thing to happen in politics in, the, in at least the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's it's really hard for me to care what happens to Nikki Haley, honestly. Um, she has been just so on both sides of everything, and such an obvious opportunistic sycophant that um, uh, I just think she's uh, uh, contemptible.
0: I guess maybe it would be the right word. I mean, I so Kevin's still thinking about who yeah, still about thinking. it. He's still on the fence.
2: Well, okay. Here's here's the thing. So, in, a, in any decent, sane world, no person who held a senior figure in the Trump administration would ever have another position of public trust. Just ever. Uh, they'd never be elected to another office. Never be appointed to anything. Probably shouldn't serve on corporate boards. Or other positions of public trust. There are a lot of lawyers that still need to lose their law licenses probably for things they did during the Trump administration.
0: Hey, Kevin. Hi.
2: Yeah, I know, I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: on a special paywalled episode of Dispatch Plus, Kevin and Sarah have a further conversation. Yeah, it's about that. But, um, but that's not what's going to happen, right? Uh, there's going to be a lot of these people in the race. And uh, the, the tragedy for me, is there's, there's a lot of things that I would like about Nikki Haley. I sort of, on some of the policy stuff, I think she's actually pretty solid on some things. I like her... Instincts toward moderation, even if they are, um, you know, obviously self-serving and uh, affected in some ways. But it's just, you know, even her, you know, efforts to try to make nice after uh, criticizing Trump pretty harshly after the January sixth stuff. I think it's been pretty gross, and um, it is difficult to uh, to care very much about that. That being said, um, I think you're probably right in some ways about there being um, uh, a sort of two person polarity to this because there's going to be Not an anti-Trump candidate in the race, I think, because there's just not enough support for an anti-Trump person in the Republican Party to uh, sustain a candidacy. But there will be a, you know, non-Trump or post-Trump candidate, someone who tries to run in that lane, as they like to say. And then there will be the Trump element, which will probably be Trump himself. And um, so that does make it look like it's probably a kind of DeSantis uh, versus Trump race with everyone else trying to get a little piece of, of something. Um, there's not going to be anyone to get into the race, I think, who is um, as Trump-like as DeSantis is, at least on the you know cultural stuff and the style of politics and in speaking to those to those elements in some ways. And DeSantis is already taking my advice on whacking Trump around on being the guy who was too much of a wimp to uh, deliver the win last time around. And I think that's, um, that's going to be a, a powerful line of argument and indictment for him. And also, he's got the kooks on his side because Trump was, you know, associated with vaccines and, and that stuff, and is still and still proud of one of the few good things his administration did, which was uh, get that effort out on the on the road real quickly. So um, it seems to me like it, it is very likely to be a very strong kind of, Desantis, Trump, and everybody else.
0: Desantis isn't expected to announce until Memorial Day or after, after the Florida legislative session concludes, after the um, resigned to run. Florida thing is fixed up. Um, so we've got months until DeSantis jumps in. And in that way, it's very different looking than the Obama-Clinton thing, where they got in within 10 days of each other, if by my memory, roughly. Um, so what does this look like for the rest of the winter-spring?
3: So this is where I think uh, 24 is shaping up a lot different than 16. In that, even for candidates in in the sixteen race, which means in twenty fifteen, that didn't get in until May and June of twenty fifteen, Ted Cruz, um, uh, Jeb Bush, Donald Trump, a uh, whole number of candidates, um, Marco Rubio, I think, may have gotten in, in April. Um, there was so much positioning immediately after the twenty fourteen the midterm elections. And so much activity and what you have now is a bunch of candidates that are all sort of circling each other. They're trying to figure out how strong Trump is and how much command of the party he has. They're also trying to figure out what is DeSantis really doing? Is he definitely going to run? Is he as strong as he appears to be, or is he going to peak too soon? They're also, and I mean, look, this is from conversations I've had as well in my reporting for the dispatch. Um, They're very acutely aware that they all get in and it facilitates Trump by default. Even with everything that Trump has been through, he retains, depending on the state, anywhere from 25 to 35% of the committed Republican voting base that are going to stick with him, most likely. And if they all get in, then he gets to do what he did in 2016, even in a weakened position. And they're aware of that. So there's not a big hurry to divide the field. Obviously, some candidates will get in. Nikki Haley's going to be the first, that appears. And she has a real authenticity issue to overcome. And we're in an era where authenticity really matters. 20 years ago, 40 years ago, you always had to be authentic and charismatic and all that. But they understood you spun. yeah, You told a couple of fibs. You were this way with one group, this way with another group. It's just kind of what you had to do. Authenticity really matters here. I think a couple of other... Things to be, I think that matter in the ways this could be different, but may not be, is Donald Trump in 2016 was the ultimate change agent. And it was like the change agent who challenged dogmas in both parties versus a collection of Reagan era politicians that were promising me tax cuts for the 55th time. And yeah, I like tax cuts, but you're all from the old guard and I've been hearing this stuff for years and you're not really speaking to the problems I have today. Uh, Trump is now. A sort of Trump is a an incumbent who doesn't have an unblemished record, and I mean electorally. And the choices that Republicans may have in this primary are going to be: I could have a fresh change agent who's not a throwback to the Reagan era, or I could have a president who's a former president who's been on the scene forever. Maybe I'll go with the change agent. So it's not just Reagan era versus Trump. It's gonna be Trump versus Trump era fresh. And that is something that some of these candidates could exploit. I will say finally that uh, you're all making a very good point. This is very necessary. You're not going to beat Trump unless you take him out. It's gonna show Republican voters that you're a fighter. And that's about the most important things you can show them other than not being heterodox on important issues like abortion and gun rights. You have to fight him because that shows them that you're a fighter. Not only can you not beat him if you just hope he goes away because he'll never just go away. It's an important thing to show Republican voters that you're willing to fight the biggest dog in the room because that will tell them that you're willing to fight the Democrats and dopes in the media like me and everybody else. And so it's a very important thing to do. I think some of these politicians have learned that lesson, but we'll see if they're willing to take the lessons they've learned and put themselves on the line.
0: All right, and with that, we're going to move on to not worth your time, but with a little twist because the answer's already yes. Jonah, this one's really just for you and me. Kevin and New David just have to stick around. Um, The Tamron monkeys that were taken from the Dallas Zoo have been found in a closet in a home on the property of a church outside of Dallas. This comes after the enclosure for the clouded leopard had been cut. She escaped, but was found. A similar cut was found in a different monkey enclosure. Then the 35-year-old endangered vulture named Pin was found dead. They've said there was a wound, um, death, suspicious, etc. Then they stole two Tamarin monkeys and hid them in a closet in an abandoned house. Thankfully, the monkeys are found and unharmed. I don't understand why this isn't like the shark attacks of, was that 2001 where that just dominated the news all summer? Every time someone saw a shark, thought about a shark, if there was, you know, a beetle that looked kind of like a shark. I mean, this is a big deal. Someone is messing with the zoo animals. And I don't know why we're not all taking this more seriously. If we all just did this together, we could find this person or persons and stop this i I don't want to keep looking for any more monkeys or leopards, and the dead endangered vulture really bothers me. Why is this not bigger news jonah
1: so i, I it, once again, I would just have to say you were once again underplaying the story um <laughs> the the really interesting development like we're in the middle of all of this talk about apocalypses. There's this new show on h b o it's all about you know zombie apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. There was a movie called Twelve Monkeys, which was about Yes, <laughs> uh, a, 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 basically a pandemic kind of situation coming out. We just got out of a pandemic. Louisiana Zoo just had 12 monkeys stolen from it. Dismissed as coincidence. I don't think so. Um, so there's just, there's just something going on out there. Um, and there's this new fungus thing. You know, the whole premise of this HBO show is that fungi cannot live, and I don't mean like, hey, I'm a fungi, Um, cannot live in uh, uh, warm climates, but now all of a sudden there's these news stories out that fungus are adapting to global warming, which is the entire premise of this zombie show on HBO. Um,
0: I mean, in fairness, the entire premise of the show doesn't make any sense in The Last of Us because it's that fungus can't live in humans, and it's like, for any woman, that's a very confusing thing to say.
1: Um, (laughs) All I'm saying is sell your bonds.
0: (laughs) Uh, Kevin, why can't we all center around a story that isn't culture war, that isn't politics, where we could all feel like we were doing our part to help the zoo stop a crazy person stealing and killing animals? I feel like this is what the country needs right now, and yet we're not doing it. Why?
2: You know, I live in Dallas, and I say let the leopards out. (laughs) <laughs> let them out. Uh, let the monkeys out. Yes, <laughs> let them let them all run wild. Dallas is not going to notice the difference. This city has bigger problems. Uh, I think you could run a whole, you know, Barnum and Bailey elephant parade up uh, Elm Street in Dallas, and uh, and the city wouldn't notice too much. The city's got bigger problems than that. So. um That's what I think about that.
0: All right. Kevin's out. New David, last word to you. Why can't we all get along?
3: People only care about cute animals.
0: The clouded leopard's adorable. It's a little bit bigger than a house cat. Super, super fuzzy, fluffy, cute thing. And the tamarind monkeys look like old men.
3: But when you see a a news headline and you don't see the picture and it just says leopard, (laughs) anything leopard, they're thinking, you know, very fast, very evil, brutal. Carnivore. You know, I made that mistake on one of our, our podcasts. I was talking about the, the
2: missing leopard, and I I pointed out that I actually have a safari rifle, so I'm I'm ready to finally get to use it. And then someone bit, someone sent me a picture of the actual clouded leopard, and it's this you know sweet little
3: kitty. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, I mean, I, I I'm all for animal stories. I have kids; they love like animals. But you know, Americans care about cute animals, so you, you either got to do it with pictures, or you got to find you know missing dog stories.
0: Interesting. I will say that the vulture may not be traditionally cute. The endangered vulture, his name was Pin, 35 years old, may he rest in peace. But, and I think Jonah will be with me, Pin was freaking adorable. And vultures are incredibly smart. We need them. Countries that have tried to wipe out vultures find that they have a big carrion problem with bacteria and gross stuff.
3: What do people say about people they don't like? You're a bunch of vultures. I mean, you're never going to get us there.
0: You were being nice. They mostly say that about lawyers. All right. (sighs) With that, David hates lawyers. Kevin thinks I should be disbarred. Jonah, you're my only friend. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating. It helps other people find it. Or you can join as a dispatch member and hop in the comments section. And uh, you can also weigh in on my disbarment. Beyond that, we will (laughs) see you next week.